Our text this morning is Galatians chapter 5, verses 25 and 26, and I would ask you uh, to stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word. We're just going to read verses 25 and 26, so um, please stand. I'm going to read these two verses from the Scriptures, and then I'm going to say, uh, this is the Word of the Lord, and we'll respond together. Thanks be to God. Galatians chapter 5, verses 25 and 26. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, friends, as Christians... Our lives, our life in Christ is wholly dependent on the Spirit of God in every way. And so self-centeredness really has no place among us. As Christians, because our life is so wholly dependent on the Spirit of God, self-centeredness is really out of place among God's people. The text that we come to this morning is a little bit of a transitional text, a summarizing text. Uh, many of you are aware that, that uh, a number of New Testament epistles, especially Paul's epistles, they, they can be thought of generally sort of in two parts. There is a, the beginning part where Paul is laying out the, the doctrine, the theology, and then there is the, the latter part where Paul gets to the practical concerns, the, the ethics. Uh, the book of Galatians, you know, roughly follows that pattern. There is the doctrinal and practical, theological and ethical portions of it. And the portion that we're in, studying Galatians, uh, is the ethical portion. It's the practical part. Paul has, has brought us to that, to that place. And his focus is how we are to live towards one another. And here in the text that we're looking at this morning, he, he's briefly summarizing his teaching about that thus far. He's giving a summary about what it is that he's been saying about the Christian life. And then, by way of negative example, he gives some practical instruction about what that looks like. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now, what does that look like? Well, let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one. There are really two parts to this text, and the sermon that I'm going to preach is going to have two distinct parts. The first part is what Paul is saying in summary about the Christian life, and then the second part is what does that look like practically. So first, what is he saying about the Christian life here? If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Well, first, Paul is making it very clear to us again that as Christians, our lives have their origin in the Spirit of God. The beginning part of verse 25, we live by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, our lives are by the Spirit. Christians are to be people who live by the Spirit. That's who we are. Now, when I say we're to, be, we're to live by the Spirit, when Paul says if we live by the Spirit, he he is not speaking of being spiritual in the kind of very general, modern sense that we often hear it used today. He is talking about 
being spiritual, living by the Spirit in the specifically Christian sense that we find described in the Bible. Meaning that, that we, human beings, apart from the grace of God, we were, we were dead in our sins and transgressions. We were spiritually dead. Though we walk around with life in our bodies and our hearts beating and the synapses in our brain firing, yet spiritually we are dead because we have rebelled against our God and been alienated from Him. He who is the source of life has been cut off from us. But this God who is Himself life, He saves us by uniting us to His life again in His Spirit, putting His Spirit in us. Now to think of it another way, Jesus Christ saves us, but He saves us by union with Himself. He doesn't save us by imparting to us some gift that is separate from Himself. He saves us by bringing us in and uniting us to Himself in a vital, spiritual way. Meaning His death on the cross is our death on the cross. His payment for sin is credited to our account. His death was our death. He stood in our place and paid the price for our sin, not just symbolically, but actually. And likewise, having paid for our sins with His own death, He puts His own Spirit in us who call upon Him in faith and believe. That's what the Scriptures refer to as the, the new birth. But John is speaking of what Christ is speaking of in John chapter 3 when He tells Nicodemus, you, you must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. There must be a, a new life in you that was not there before. When you were dead before, there must be life. And that life comes by the Spirit. And this is not, again, this is not something symbolic that the Scriptures speak of. When Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's not saying that in some sort of general, detached, representative way. What he's saying is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, he, he is literally dwelling in me. And the life, the real spiritual life that is present in me, it is God himself in Again, it's important that we understand that, that this is at the heart of the gospel. Not that God gives some sort of gift that we lay a hold of and that saves us. That there is a golden ticket or some kind of deposit or something given to you. No, the, the true gospel, it's him connecting us to himself by putting his spirit in us. Right, not that we get something from Christ that saves us, but that we are connected to Christ. And He saves us. You see the difference? It's a subtle difference, but it's a very significant one. And friends, I don't want to beat a dead horse here and be too repetitive, but do you understand what I'm saying? It's very important, I think, that we understand that this is the nature of the gospel that was preached by Christ, that our life is in the Spirit. It's entirely possible that people could come to this room and listen to me or somebody like me standing up here preaching the gospel and think that I'm saying you ought to become religious because that will please God. Or think that I'm saying 
Children, you ought to obey your parents and, and do good things and be good boys and girls that God loves and approves of. It's entirely possible that you hear me saying that and think that's the gospel. Think that people are standing up here telling you, I've got it together and you ought to become like me. Or the people sitting in the pews, those are good people and you ought to become like them, become like us and God will approve of you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not a lifestyle that saves you or a religion that saves you or any method for you to be saved. The gospel is that God himself will save you. Jesus Christ died to pay for sins. And if you will put your trust in him, he will actually put his spirit in you. This is why the apostle Paul, the apostle Peter at the end of his sermon in Acts chapter 2 says, you call upon the Lord and he will give his Holy Spirit to you. He will put life in you. Again, not just in some symbolic, representative way, but he'll really do it. He'll really bring you to life. He'll unite you to the living God. Friends, what that, what that means is, if you are living a life that is utterly disconnected from God, there is no vital interest or connection to him. No matter what you may have done years ago in the past, you're living a fundamentally unchristian life, and you ought to examine yourself. You ought to consider our own souls. Because life in Christ is not just life having received something disconnected from Him, but rather receiving Him and being in union with Him. And brothers and sisters, we need to remember what this means for us that we live by the Spirit. It is in vital connection to him that we have all of our life. This is what the Lord Jesus is referring to in John chapter 15 when he speaks about the vine and the branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. It's not just that I've, I've, done, I've sprinkled my fairy dust on you and now go think happy thoughts. But rather, I am the trunk of the tree and your branch is coming off and your connection to me is your life vitally. The Lord Jesus uses that that very sort of agrarian illustration of vine and branches. I think probably for us, uh, we might it might be more close to home to, to think of it in terms of cell phones and like lamps on your desk. If you unplug a cell phone from the wall, it has a battery that keeps its charge, at least if it's relatively new. You unplug it and it still works. Lamps are not that way. You unplug the lamp and it turns off, right? It needs to be connected to the wall socket. Christians are like lamps, not like cell phones. We don't hold a charge. We don't, we don't get something from God and then go on our own strength. We are very much tied into him, and it is his spirit who is life to us. His spirit is the current that flows through us. And it matters if we remember that. If we live by the spirit, if my life is his spirit in me, that affects us in how we live. If we remember that, that we are empty vessels to be filled by nature, that, we're not that we are beloved to him, but we're not impressive to him, but rather we are those who receive from him everything that we have. That should make us humble. That should, that should deliver us from self-reliance and make it dependent upon him. That should make us prayerful, shouldn't it? 
if we believe that our life is in him. It should make us attentive to his word, attentive to him. And that brings us to the the next part of what Paul says here in Galatians chapter 5. Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit of God is not only the origin of our lives as Christians, but the Spirit is very much the guide by which we operate practically day in and day out. If If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The same principle that gives us life is also to govern us and guide our lives. Now when Paul says to keep in step, it's uh, the term that he's using, the phrase that he's using, um, is, a, is a phrase that was commonly used in military literature. It means to, to fall in line, to, to, to keep in step, to, to get in line, to, to march in step behind the one that is leading. And in this case, it is the Spirit. To keep in step with the Spirit means to, to fall into place behind the Spirit and walk in His steps after. This principle of our new life spiritually, that is, that all of our life is in the Spirit and not in us, is also our guiding, governing principle practically in how we live our lives and that we are to be directed by the Spirit and not by our own wisdom. We're not to lean on our own understanding, but we're to acknowledge Him. Proverbs chapter 3 says. Now, friends, when we speak of being guided by the Spirit, it is unfortunate, I think, that, that many of us, the, the immediate, our immediate reaction, what we think of first, is being guided by the Spirit in terms of subjective impressions and feelings that we might have. Having peace about this or about that, etc. Now, this is unfortunate, I say, because though the Holy Spirit of God does direct us individually and in a variety of ways, the normal way that he directs us is by his word. It is unusual and subjective that he directs us by our impressions and by our feelings. And as you all are very well aware, his directing in that regard is often unreliable because our feelings are not reliable. The sin that corrupts our hearts corrupts our interpretation of such things. The normal, incorruptible, and therefore reliable source of guidance for us is the Word of God. And to walk by the Spirit means to live by what our God has said. Rather than how I feel or think or what I judge to be right and wrong. People who are led by the Spirit are people who are often asking the question, how should I live? How should I respond in this circumstance? Oh God, what have you said? And searching the Scriptures continually and prayer, prayerfully for the answer. People walking in step with the Spirit are people who are Bible-saturated people because the Bible is the Word of the Spirit of God. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, the sword of the Spirit, that is the Word. Walking in step with Him looks like walking in step with His Word. Now let me, I'll illustrate that for you. I, this is the time of year where... Uh, my, my boys and I like to go hiking, like to go on the Appalachian Trail and go backpacking if we can. And uh, my boys are fast and I am slow. You're probably not surprised by that. So uh, I am always in the back, and sometimes they will run ahead 
and uh, sometimes they can get miles ahead. But I've told them, you know, as go ahead as far as you're going to go. We've got some stopping place in our mind up ahead. But, you know, stay on the trail. Don't, don't go off and blaze your own trail. Follow the blazes. Stay on the trail. I've got counsel for them. And we're walking the same path together, whether I'm standing right behind them or whether it feels like I'm a million miles away, if they're walking according to the instruction that I've given them. They can be way ahead of me and out of sight. And if they're remembering what I have said and walking along the path that I have given them, we are walking together and we end up in the same place. Now, the Spirit of God is never far from us, but you see my point. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 119, His Word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. To walk with the Spirit of God looks like to walk according to His Word. Looks like, people, looks like we would be those people that listen to Him, that pay attention to Him, that care about what He says, and not just what I'm thinking in the moment, but like children that look up to our God who is Himself our Father and say, Father, lead me. And then turn our attention to His Word pray and search the scriptures and seek to be led by them. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. It makes sense, doesn't it? If He is our life, oh, may He also be our guide. May He also be the one that governs us and directs us. Now, what are Spirit-led, Bible-saturated Christians to be like? Somebody who has got their nose in the Bible and is pouring over every word that he says. Bible people. What are they to be like? Well, I think probably, unfortunately, the stereotype might be that they're sometimes sharp know-it-alls that like to correct everybody and prove themselves right. Oddly enough, that's not what Paul says, though. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, Envying one another. When Paul begins to speak of what it looks like to walk by the Spirit, he begins to speak of humble, merciful, gentle people. Now, let's think of what Paul says here again. It's a negative example. What does it look like to walk in step with the Spirit, we who have our life in Him? Well, here's what it doesn't look like. It does not look like being conceited. It does not look like provoking one another. It does not look like envying one another. It's not being absorbed with self-centeredness that results in hostility towards others and jealousy towards others. That's a pleasant surprise, isn't it? The farthest thing from a sharp know-it-all who has a high opinion of himself. This word that Paul uses, they're not to become conceited. Some translations that it gets, uh, it gets rendered vainglorious, which has a certain kind of uh, weight to it. Vainglorious. Right? To glory in myself. To, to love myself and exalt myself. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul uses this word in conjunction with self-ambition. Self-exaltation. Self-service. Self-centeredness. We're not to be like that if our lives are in the Spirit and are walking in step with the Spirit. And how does a self-centered person act? How does the conceited person act? Paul says they, they provoke one another and they envy one another. 
provoking one another, the, the, literally saying that the, the people that, that, that call each other out, they, they challenge others and they stir up strife. Provoking one another. If any of you have got small children at home, you know what that looks like. We're, we're, dealing, we're dealing with the tendency to provoke one another all the time. Um, in fact, so much so that we're, you know, uh, toying with fasts from provocation for the next 24 hours. Stop provoking your brothers. You know, we're, we're, you see it in children and it's very blatant. Picking at each other, stirring up a fight, starting trouble. Adults do it in a much more socially acceptable way, don't they? I mean, some, some adults can do this, just pick at people and be, and provoke that way. I think much more often provocation takes the form of a hypersensitivity, uh, a, a quickness to offense and a slowness to forgive. Not an, not an out of the blue stirring one another up into strife, but a being so ready to strike out at somebody that all they have to do is look at you the wrong way or breathe on you the wrong way or walk the wrong way in your presence and you fly off the handle. And feel justified. I think that's often how provocation takes place with us. Not stirring up out of the blue, but overreacting to one another, to faults, to weaknesses, and responding in such a way that inflames things, that stirs up strife. That's what Paul's speaking about. Stirring up strife and difficulty. Now, some of you, some of you may have that neighbor in your neighborhood who everybody keeps a distance from that yard and that fence because you do anything the wrong way and that neighbor gets offended. You park the wrong way on the street. You know, hopefully none of us are that neighbor. Right? But where it, it, is, it is so difficult to please this person. They are so easy to be offended that they end up having strife all the time all around them. They might be sitting back in their house and thinking, well, I don't start any of this. But they are so wound up and ready to react that really they end up stirring up strife all the time and they have conflict with everybody all over the place. I think it looks like for that more often, look like that for us more often than not. That's not all though. Paul says to be conceited, provoking one another, and then envying one another. Now when he says envying, we know what envy is. It's jealousy, it's covetousness. And again, this is obvious with children. Uh, you know, at the, at the birthday party, you know, there's the one child that gets the birthday gifts, and then there's some other children that hang their heads low because they have to give the gifts. For adults, I think it often takes the form, again, a slightly more accept, socially acceptable, veiled form of judgmentalism, where when we see somebody has something that we want, we criticize them. We're not blatantly jealous of them. We're not overtly envious of them. But when the neighbor pulls that car up in the, in the driveway that you wish you had, you shake your head and say, man, how do they spend their money? Can you believe that? You know, it looks like that. It's a thin veil over envy, but it really is envy at the heart of it. Being sharp and judgmental about the way, the kind of houses other people live in, or the kind of vacations that other people take, or the kind of cars that they drive. We end up painting it with this sort of veneer of stewardship or prudence or whatever it is, but at the heart of it, it's envy, jealousy. And all of it, friends, whether it's envy, whether it's 
provocation. It is conceit. It springs from conceit, from self-centeredness, to looking out for myself and exalting myself. I want to be recognized. I want to have. I want to be lifted up. I think if you're interested in a, a case study of conceit, provocation, and envy, uh, Haman in the book of Esther is an excellent one. That guy is just a picture of conceit that leads to all these other things. Jealousy, and in the end, he ends up stuck on his own spit. But as we look at what Paul is saying here, remember he's using this as an inverse example so if we consider what he's the opposite of what he's saying, he's saying that to walk by the Spirit is not to become conceited, to provoke one another, to envy one another. You turn that around, and to walk by the Spirit looks like humility. It looks like love. It looks like mercy and contentedness and gratitude, which makes perfect sense for those whose life is in the Spirit and walk by the Spirit, doesn't it? For me... To recognize that my life is in the Spirit of God, that He Himself is my life. Not just that He's given me life, but He is my life. And everything alive in me depends on Him, spiritually speaking. It's very much to have gotten my identity at the cross, isn't it? To see myself as what I really am, which is a sinner saved by grace. And a sinner saved by grace for me to understand myself to be a sinner saved by grace, to have an agenda to exalt myself at the expense of others is diametrically opposed to understanding myself that way, my life to be in the Spirit of God. To have an agenda rather not to look out for myself, but, but rather to please the one who saved me and to exalt him. To recognize that self-centeredness and self-exaltation is what killed us in the garden in the first place, isn't it? And broke us away from the life that is God. And instead, rather like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to make it our aim to please Him rather than to please myself at all times. And that works out in relation to others. Again, that's the big picture of what Paul is saying at this point in Galatians. To be humble and dependent upon the Spirit of God, recognizing that everything I have is his, rather than being hostile towards others. And humility would make me merciful, make me hard to offend, ready to overlook offense, ready to forgive, rather than being judgmental. It would make me glad for the blessings that others receive and content with what God had given me. You see what that looks like? I'll tell you, in my mind, I recently, um, well, I guess a couple years ago, I, was, I, I read a book that used a word I had never heard before. The word was pachydermis. Some of you may have heard of that word. I've never read it since then. I had to go look it up. It means thick skin, like a pachyderm, like an elephant. Pachydermis. And uh, it has become my prayer over the years that, that I would be more pachydermatous when it comes to offense, when it comes to hurt, when it comes to judgment of others. That as I walk the life in step with the Spirit, a life of discipleship, 
that I would not be like a like a porcupine, you know, with my with my quills out, bristly, ready to poke anybody, needle anybody who gets close enough to me because I'm ready to defend myself all the time. That I not be like a snake there along the path of discipleship coiled up, minding my own business, but boy, ready to strike out at anybody who gets close to me. But rather I would be, this is going to sound silly if I think of it this way, rather I'd be like a happy little elephant walking down the path of discipleship. Dealing with prickles, dealing with needles, dealing with these things in stride. With humility. Walking by the Spirit. Recognizing that all of my life is in him. Does that make sense? That's a weird picture, I know. Well, but friends, there's not a we should not be a people who are a bunch of porcupines and snakes. Don't get close to him. Oh, you gotta watch out for her. We should rather be people that are hard to offend. People that are grateful for what other people have in the blessing of God. Not with a chip on our shoulder ready to get knocked off all. And that's not just because that's a good way to live. It is because our life is in the Spirit of God. Everything we have is His. And we want to walk in step with Him. We want to walk in step with what He has said. We want to live by His Word and live in dependence upon Him. And a life like that looks like a life filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. What does it mean to be a Christian essentially? It means to depend on the Spirit of God for life. What does it look like to live as a Christian day by day? It looks like walking by the Spirit, falling in line with Him and what He said in His Word. And what does somebody walking by the Spirit look like? It does not look like conceit, but rather humility. Not causing friction with others, not judging others, but merciful, loving contentment and gratitude. Now, is that any surprise? It should not be. Because isn't that what our Lord was like? You think about the Lord Jesus, the way he walked, the way he talked, his life in the Gospels is the furthest thing from conceit, from provoking, from envy. But rather in humility, he's merciful. He gives, he loves He humbles himself even to the point of death, death on a cross in the form of his mercy. It is his spirit that is in us. To depend upon his spirit is to walk in step with his spirit. So brothers and sisters, let's walk in step with the spirit. If we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Not being conceited, not provoking one another, not envying one another. Now let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, O God, for your word. We thank you for your spirit that gives us life. And we pray, O Lord, that you would help us to trust in your spirit and walk according to your spirit. Oh, do deliver us from all those those sins that come along from being in the flesh in this age. All those parts of us that are yet unsanctified. Forgive us for the ways, Lord, we have been conceited. Forgive us for the ways that we've, we've stirred up strife with others, even in the church. Forgive us, Lord, for our envy, for our jealousy. And all teach us to turn back to you and trust in you alone. Oh, Holy Spirit, have mercy on us, we pray.
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.